everybody, a couple quick things before we begin. Thank you so much for making this episode possible. If you are a Patreon supporter, we are so grateful. We have bonus episodes that come out on a somewhat regular basis. Our last one was on Burn After Reading in Dystopia. I'm not sure what the next one will be about, but it'll be out in the next uh, week or so. And I'm very excited to share that with you when it comes out. Thank you so much to Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory for making it possible as well. Commercial content video production company based in Portland, Maine, though does work throughout these here United States. Thank you to Knack Factory. Again, spelled with a silent K. We have episode specific playlists that come out every week. They come out on Spotify. If you're interested in that, giving that a listen, check the show notes. I bet this week's is going to be a lot of fun. All right, let's get to camp. It's time. It's camp time. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Welcome, friends, to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Sarah. A movie's feeling about podcasts. A movie's feeling. Yes. About heavyweights. Yes. Sarah Marshall, tell us about what we're diving into and why we're diving into it. We're jumping onto the blob and then another kid is going to dive in. (laughs) Um, We are talking about heavyweights with our friend Carmen Maria Machado. This is a fabulous episode where everything went wrong and it still turned out great, just like in Heavyweights. (laughs) Yeah, we had a number of recording issues on several ends, one of them being mine. And I just leave the conversation. You both soldiered on and made a delightful conversation occur. Well, you sent us an email at the time. You're like, go on without me. It was like, you know, the hiking the Apple action trail. The show must go on. What were some highlights for you in this conversation? Well, I entered this conversation being like, I love this movie. I think it's so sweet. I love its heart and its kindness. But also, I'm not a fat person, and so I'm not in a significant sense really qualified to say whether it handles its subject appropriately, which is a fat camp and then an insurrection at a fat camp. Hmm. And Carmen was our proudly fat lover of Fiona the Hippo expert. (laughs) You know, and she doesn't speak for anyone more than herself. I kind of went in being like, what is this like to watch as someone who is being depicted in a sense by a form of media that is typically so relentlessly unkind? Mm. And she was like, yeah, this feels sweet to me too. So sharing a conversation just in that space, like regardless of whether this movie does it or doesn't do it for other people, I loved having this conversation and this like shared attitude of like to borrow the title of another wonderful show how did this get made (laughs) how did something so radically utopian get made in the 90s yes absolutely i loved carmen's take this is really my first time in earnest with this movie so i didn't know what to expect one Mm -hmm. way or another and it was a great way to to dive into it that's great yeah and you know summer is winding down That's always a stressor for me. I still feel like a a little dread in the pit of my stomach when I see back to school supplies on sale, even though I'm 33 (laughs) years old. To me anyway, there's a a certain like extra layer of stress around this because our ability to freely congregate with those we love seems like it's going to be affected as it gets colder and as we move indoors. And that's really sad. And by God, let's live our best lives and put our oppressors in a jail if we need to. No, I'm against jail generally. Let's put our oppressors, well, I don't want to be responsible for anything. Be healthy, ignore your weight, be happy, 
no one gets to force you to hike. And I'll leave the, the revolution ethics up to you. you <laughs> <laughs> Dear Grandma, someone once said war is hell. They've never been to fat camp. I eat success for breakfast with skim milk. How can I sell an infomercial about fat kids who can't keep their piggy little snouts shut? You know what? I don't blame myself. No, not this time, Tony. Excuse me one second. How you doing, little Tony? Bad? Why do you feel bad? Because everything's falling apart and I can't do anything about it? It's not your fault. I know it's not my fault, but whose fault is it? It's not my fault. It's their fault. That's right. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. You have failed and you will pay. Now, who wants to tell us the lesson we learned here? Don't put Twinkies on your pizza. No. We gotta get healthy for ourselves. If we start respecting ourselves, no one can touch us. We're as good as anybody. And it's about time we started acting that way. Hello, Sarah Marshall. <laughs> Hello, Alex Steed. I was just reading Dean Cameron's Wikipedia page. No, that's not Dean Kane. Who's Dean Cameron? Chainsaw. Oh, of course. Of course. The main character in summer school, the topic of one of our bonus episodes. Little man with a big white beard. No. Yes. Sarah, how are you doing? You look vibrant as always. I'm good. In Portland, we've all decided to accept that it's like 90 degrees all the time now. And we're not, we don't seem to be complaining about it or freaking out about it like we would normally because we're like, at least it's not 115 degrees. I don't care. (laughs) I touched hell earlier this year and this is hell minus 25. As long as I'm not being slowly broasted like a Boston market chicken, I don't give a damn. Sarah, we're talking about heavyweights. Uh-huh. Thank the eight foot sub sandwich that we all worship in one way or another. <laughs> I'm so excited to be doing this. Who are we joined by? We're joined by my fellow number one heavyweights fan, my friend Carmen from Philly, who is a woman of many accolades, who I will let introduce herself for that reason, because I don't know which ones to choose. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm Carmen from Philly. <laughs> My name is Carmen Maria Machado, and I'm a writer. I'm a writer and a teacher, I guess. And I have written three books, or two books in a graphic novel. Um, So uh, Her Body and Other Parties, which is a short story collection, In the Dream House, which is a memoir, and The Low, Low Woods, which is a graphic novel, um, which came out last year. Carmen, so many people are just excited that you're going to be here, you're here on the show, period, and that we're talking about this movie. So I was hoping you could just tell us about your history with this movie. Do you have like, do you have pre-existing love for it? Are you enthusiastic about it? Were you elated or disappointed <laughs> by a revisit? How, how are you doing with Heavyweights? So Heavyweights was one of those movies that I watched a lot as a kid. Um, so I had this ritual where we would go, you know, in the summers, especially, and um, we were allowed to go rent movies. And so we would go to the Blockbuster and it would be really cold in the Blockbuster from the air conditioning. And I would sort of run to various video cassettes to look at their covers. So I would go to like the horror section and 
stare at Hellraiser and shiver with fear. And he's holding the box like this in front of his chest. Yeah, that sounds right. All I remember were the, I mean, the pins in his head were really sort of the um, distinctive. And he's staring at you. It's like a cold blue cover. Yeah. And he wants to have sex with you or something. It's the interesting thing about Pinhead. (laughs) (laughs) I did the same thing and I used to always go look at Candyman. I think that that's like such a specific universal experience for a cohort of people. Fully experienced the box art. So 25 years worth of childhood, you could visit some scary VHS boxes or DVD boxes. And you form like a relationship. Yeah. Did your Blockbuster also have balloons? Yes. Why did they do that? <laughs> that was also part of the ritual. Would be begging for candy. My <laughs> my father was saying no candy um, because that was how my house was. And then said, can I have a balloon? And they would give me the balloon and I would take the balloon home and I would tie it to my bed mm. because I didn't want it to go anywhere. And then the next morning it would be gone. Whoa. Um, because my mother apparently didn't like me being near balloons, huh. but didn't want to like forbid me from balloons. So she, in the night they would apparently Holy I cut it away. Way. So I was, I used to be convinced that the balloon was uh. getting out of my room somehow, which is why I tied it. <laughs> I tied it to the bedpost. Because Blockbuster is a scary place where scary boxes live. So why not magic balloons? So so cold little Carmen <laughs> anticipating a balloon is in the Blockbuster, has just visited Pinhead and Pinhead has whispered, I'm going to tear your soul apart. Yes. And you're like, not right now. And then you go over to go look at other movies. And what do you look at? Then I would go to one of the like five movies we would check out constantly, um, which was uh, Heavyweights was one of those movies. Hooray. So it definitely was a movie that was a big part of my childhood. And when we decided to do this podcast, I had not seen it in many years. So, but like in my memory, I remembered it being very sweet, but I was, of course, the nineties are so incredibly fat phobic that I was like, this must be like a, like a false memory. Like when you're like, let's turn on friends, that'll be nice. And then it's like, lesbians are gross. Fat Monica (laughs) laugh track. And you're like, okay. Imagine Chandler in a dress. (laughs) (laughs) Horrendous. And it's like weird because I also was like not a, like I'm a fat adult. I was not a fat child. Mm -hmm. I was like a fat teen. Like I had a non-fat body as a small kid. So like, I think if I had been a fat child, Hmm. it would have scanned really differently in my household and I probably would not have been allowed to watch it. Hmm. But as it was, I was allowed to watch it and I really, really loved it. Why do you think that is, is Carmen? Because I was a fat kid and this movie never came into my universe and I'm wondering how much those things were related. Well, I feel like I'm shit talking my mom a lot in this just because I've just now mentioned her several times. It's like she would let me have this. She would let me have this, which is she stole my balloons in the night. I understand mom's <laughs> feeling superstitious about balloons. That's a neutral fact. Yeah, they can steal your breath. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My mother, she had a lot of like things she didn't like in children's movies. And it's actually, hmm. so she really didn't like it when kids sassed adults, which is like every child, totally. movie, every children's movie that's ever been created. Right. That's the point of children's movies to watch other children do that. <laughs> because the movie is so fat neutral to fat positive. Mm-hmm. She, if I were a fat child, because she became very concerned with my weight when I got older. So like, mm-hmm. I think if I had been a fat child, I think she would have not cared for a film that demonized exercise and demonized fitness gurus and, you know, Mm -hmm. but as it was, I was not, I was not a fat child. So like, I didn't experience that like conflict. We decided to do the podcast. I was like, okay, I'm going to rewatch this. And both my, my wife and my girlfriend are both like, 
is this movie going to be really fucked up? Like, are we going to be really upset watching this movie? And I was like, I don't know, but let's just try it. I was like, let's see it. And it was so beautiful. <laughs> I was like crying. I was like having this super intense, like emotional reaction because it was so beautiful and so surprising in its, again, fat neutrality to fat positivity, um, which for a movie from the 90s is just shocking, just like truly, truly shocking. Mm. I feel like it would feel very progressive today. People will be like, wow. One of the things I love about this movie is that at the end of the summer, like, they're all in charge of their own diets. They've learned to, you know, do some healthy stuff. They're hiking and none of them have lost any yeah. weight. <laughs> and like, that's such a radical idea even today. There's a scene where Jeffrey Tambor sees his son and he says, you look the same. The son says like, but I feel great or something. And his mom's like, that's important too. Yeah. And that's like such a real parent interaction where it's like, yeah. this bad expectation I have of you, you know, supersedes you just feeling okay. Another moment that is like incredibly astute, whether intentionally or not, is like the scene on the plane where he's going and he meets Kenan Thompson and Kenan Thompson's like, yeah, are you going to this camp? And he's like, how'd you know? And he's like, because you're fat. And then he says, is that your dad? It's like there's like a man sitting next to him who's asleep. And he's like, no, that's not my dad. Why do you think he's my dad? He's like, oh, because he's fat, too, which is like, it's like, yeah, (laughs) like it's just like a really like astute. It's like matter of fact. And it's like. There's just something about it that's so it's like, I don't know if you could write it intentionally that smart. Like, it's just so smart about Mm. the way it talks about bodies, like almost like predicting, I think, certain movements and like fat politics. Like it's like anticipating Mm. certain like arguments or ideas, which I just find really, really interesting. Well, I would love to know what you think of a line that comes immediately after that, which I find fascinating because this describes like Camp Hope and its utopian era. Kenan Thompson is explaining how Camp Hope works. And he's like, it's great because you're not the fat kid because everybody's the fat kid. Yeah. And in fact, there's a character who is a kid who used to be fat, who's now skinny, who's like an adult counselor. And he's like, they like make fun of him. They're like, they're like making fun of him for being different than I know. Which I was like, he's like, whatever, guys, I'm going to make a show and call it Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, totally. It's fucking Paul Feig. It's so funny. I was like, is this He's wonderful in this. He's so good. Also, the song he sings at the end. Anyway, Sarah. Yes. Can you just run us through what Heavyweights is and what the whole deal is? Like Newsies, Heavyweights is one of the bizarrely radical films that Disney somehow made in the 90s that advocates kids taking over the adult world and forcing adults to bow down to their morals, which is a wonderful concept that I would love to see more of, really anticipatory of the present moment. So it is about our main character, Gerald Garner, age 11, who is sent to Camp Hope, which he at first really doesn't want to go to because he's like, that's a fat camp. I don't want to go to a fat camp. I find that stigmatizing. But then he arrives, he realizes that it's basically a utopia for some of the reasons that we just talked about. And he's already making friends and he's going to have this amazing summer. But no, he isn't because the camp has been lost by its original owners, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira, to Ben Stiller's character, Tony Perkis, who's a terrifying aerobicizer and positive thinking 
Alex, you were like, is he based on Tony Robbins? And I was like, yeah, I think so. I think every motivational speaker character in the 90s is kind of supposed to be Tony Robbins. And I'm wondering, too, because I said it would be even more fun if it was based on Tony Perkins. And I'm wondering, too, how much like having his name be Tony Perkins is a nod to him being a psychotic Tony Robbins. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that makes sense. If I were Ben Stiller in the 90s, I would be like, yeah, that's a good joke. The kids are going to like that. I'm making like he's writing the movie, which he didn't. But, you know. Let's give it to him. <laughs> this is also pro- maybe like the first iconic Ben Stiller performance. Yes. Which is like hilarious. Yeah. It's funny how we say like a performance goes to 11 because the whole that original joke was based on the idea that going to 11 is a meaningless concept <laughs> and it would still just go to 10. But this performance goes to 11 anyway. <laughs> it sure does. This was actually my first Ben Stiller film. And it's funny because as I got older, I feel like I'd always like whenever I'd see him in like I saw him in like Zoolander and I was like, oh, it's the guy from Heavyweights. Mm-hmm. Like for me, like Heavyweights right. is like a unit of measurement for Ben Stiller for me for I a really love long time. That so much. I still feel like he's the guy from Heavyweights at heart. So yeah, we're introduced to this very clearly self-loathing, hanging by a thread, positive thinking and aerobicizing guy named Tony Perkis, who's like, I'm going to take over this camp. You're going to all lose a bunch of weight because I'm going to bully you and make you exercise a ton. It's basically the biggest loser. And then we're going to make an infomercial about it and sell the Perkis system to everybody. And you're going to be my guinea pigs. And so obviously camp becomes terrible. The kids are trying to write to their parents. No one is helping them. And so eventually they revolt and have a lay Miz and they... <laughs> <laughs> Kidnap Tony and put him in an electrified cage of their own contrivance. <laughs> it's a real Abu Ghraib situation for Tony for a minute. And you're like, it's amazing. <laughs> I had forgotten the intensity of this. And when we got to this moment, either Val or Marnie was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah. He's just in a cage. Like, and I was like, yeah, I'd forgotten. But I love how intense this is. These were jokes we could make in the 90s. <laughs> And they show the adults who are the wonderful Paul Feig is a character, the wonderful Pat, and the wonderful Julie, the nurse who's Pat's love interest. Mm-hmm. And Pat is, um, I think, a former camper who mm-hmm. now works at the camp. He's been there for 18 years. He is an adult fat role model who needs to, therefore, like overcome his self-consciousness and make a move with Julie who's clearly extremely into him and that's part of his arc this summer Mm -hmm. and so all the adults have been like trying to figure out ways to via legitimate means get rid of Tony like get a lawyer get child protective services involved but nothing is working and so the kids are like here's Tony we put him in a cage and they're like no well uh, uh, okay And then the parents come and they're like, we put, well, and then Tony escapes and the parents realize that the kids did the right thing by putting Tony in a cage and it all works out. Like the, one of the morals of this movie is that sometimes kids have to overthrow an adult and put him in a cage. And then the kids basically have sort of a Bacchanalian bender and then they decide to be more healthy, but that basically means they're all in charge of their own diets and... They're learning how to cook for themselves and stuff. And they learn not to put Twinkies on their pizza by putting Twinkies on their pizza, which is an important, it's important that you learn that that way. (laughs) 
And then they still have to have the cultural insensitivity relay race <laughs> with camp MVP across the lake, which they win in a squeaker with Jerry doing an amazing performance in a go-kart in the final leg and becoming the hero of the whole camp. The end. I love that the premise of this movie that like precedes the plot of the movie is that Jerry Stiller runs a fat camp for kids Mm -hmm. where it's meant to be a utopia. Yeah. Jerry Stiller and Anne Mira together, which you can totally picture, right? Yes, I can. Hi, hi, <laughs> hiya. It's interesting that like that's how like kids are recruited for it as their parents think that they're sending them away to like something that's going to be like a punitive conversion camp. And they yeah. go and they just have like a great time. And like the, the, the drama comes from that being taken away from them. It's like thinking you're sending your child to gay conversion camp and then they arrive and it's like, Welcome, everybody. We're doing theater and nature walks. You know, this felt like such an outlier because the 90s were so fat phobic and like the 90s were the Ben Stiller character in this movie. Like, can you you talk about why this feels like such an outlier? I think because every movie of the 90s was like either extremely and sort of overtly or, or, you know, just like passingly was like deeply, deeply fat phobic. Everything from like fat characters not getting any kind of interiority or dignity or romance or anything like that to just like fat jokes. And also this sort of language around intelligence, um, sort of like fat equaling stupid and like fat characters not having any, yeah, like any, just any sense of self, Uh, you know, watching movies in the nineties is always like a little bit of a landmine in that way. You know, it's like, you're walking through, you're just like, you're like, oh, this is so charming. Oh my God. (laughs) Like something really, really upsetting. And so this movie, I just kept watching this when I was rewatching it, thinking, like, how did this get made? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know what forces, like, converge to, like, allow this movie to exist. This like, basically fat neutral to fat positive movie about fat kids. But, like, I love it. And I'm just amazed that it exists. And, yeah, it's like, per- it's just no notes. Like, it's just so, I mean, I guess my one note would be cultural insensitivity. <laughs> like, all yeah. these camp <laughs> movies that just have, like, indigenous imagery and yeah yeah but besides that i'm like no notes like it's great i love it but this would be a great thing to remedy if you were to i don't know like do a gen z remake as a limited series on disney plus (laughs) as a nostalgia cash grab that people would totally watch and you can also then expand the universe Mm. and have fat girls which i think is like (laughs) it's not something that i fault this movie for not having because it did something huge already but like I, I would like to see a bigger world. Because, yeah, there are very few female characters. There's, like, the ner- Julie the nurse, the love interest, mm-hmm. and then there's these, like, girls that are brought to a dance, right, with the dance's intention being to shame the boys into losing weight. Yeah. So it's just this, like, awful and, like, this, you know, horrible sort of moment where, like, they're standing, like, opposite each other, and the girls are just looking very contemptuous, and the boys are looking, like, just super nervous, and it's, like, been set up to just humiliate them. And then eventually the dance becomes dancey and people begin dancing together and, you know, it becomes this really sweet moment. But there's a moment in that scene where, like, one girl says, like, I don't know why they just don't lose weight. And then another girl says, what, should they just throw up after every meal like you or whatever they, she says? I know. And that's all we hear from the girl characters, practically. It's just like, and over there, that's what girls do anyway. Yeah. This is one of those movies where I don't know that this is the case, but just looking at everyone who's involved, like Steve Brill directed this movie. It's his directorial debut. It came out after Steve Brill wrote two of the Mighty Ducks movies, which just probably made 
Disney, just an astronomical amount of money. Mm-hmm. Steve Brill at this point was roommates with Mark Marin and Peter Berg. Peter Berg is in this movie um, and obviously friends with, how do we say Judd's last name? How do we, is it? I think it's Apatow, isn't it? I say Apatow. I don't know that that's correct. Apatow? Will you please say it the way you said it before because it was really. Apatow? <laughs> <laughs> I That's love so that. <laughs> this is a Mark Marin adjacent Disney movie. Like that, that seems key. Totally, it's so good. And that, and I think it's just one of those situations where it's like a filmmaker happens to be involved in making a large corporation so much money. Mm. Like Howard Ashman. Totally. He's like, I have a script that I want to turn into a movie. You can't say no. I just made you so much money. And it happened. And also this movie looks inexpensive, right? Like you have got like a single location for almost all of it. Shot at a camp. A bunch of like contract actors. Like I think that that's the thing too. Like again, like thinking about thinking about all these kids in the Mighty Ducks movies. Like these kids who already signed their souls away to the Disney movie mills. Exactly. And then also just to think like with the people who are involved, like that this it makes so much sense that this is like a proto freaks and geeks mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. like these are the people who would go on to make freaks and geeks like they yeah these are people who are making movies about kids that don't quite fit in but have have carved out a space in a social space for themselves and who still get kissed which is really key yeah, <laughs> I love it. I, I imagine Newsies was the same thing. Like, I imagine like Newsies had to be mm. like Kenny Ortega had choreographed billions into into Disney's bank. And he was just like, I need to make this film. Something had <laughs> happened. Yeah. I don't know what that story is. But yeah, it had to be somebody's baby. It, like, it doesn't seem like it was given like lavish oversight Mm -hmm. or funding from Disney really yeah I would love to know that story why is this a movie that you feel is special Sarah and that like your explanation you feel like your synopsis or explanation doesn't quite touch it like what are the ethereal pieces that are not getting touched by just explaining the plot so a scene that makes me emotional and tends to make me cry is when So like Jerry, when he went to this camp in the promotional video, he saw go-karts and he was like, oh, I'm excited about the go-karts. And then, of course, Tony took the go-karts away because the Perka system doesn't allow for fun because fun doesn't teach you to be a skinny winner. And so there's a scene where Pat, who's the counselor, who kind of looks like Jerry as an adult, pushes him on the go-kart through the go-kart course and... It's just incredibly sweet. Like, that's just the whole scene. Jerry talks about how he was, you know, he wanted to do the go-karts because he's kind of too slow for sports. And so he, if he could be on a go-kart, he could really go fast. And I also, I think, like, I identified with this movie as a kid because I was a skinny kid, but in I was a profoundly ungainly kid in that way. And I was, like, the kind of kid that was always, like, in right field thinking about something else. (laughs) The feeling that like organized sports or even organized fun is a way to kind of like weed out the losers and make the different feel even more different. And that basically there is no fun for you in groups is a feeling that started for me kind of early. And this is totally a proto freaks and geeks because this is, this is a movie about finding your people and realizing that you don't actually have to change and that like you outnumber Tony Perkis in this world that you have found, even though he outnumbers you maybe somewhere else. (laughs) 
And it's a movie about kids being right about how adults don't have a right to torture them, which is a relatively rare concept to see executed in a story like this. Mm. Yeah. When Jerry talks about like in that scene where he's like, he's like, I just wanted to go fast. Like I wanted to know what it was like to go fast. And I like know that like, it's why I like to be on like roller skates or a bike. Like it's like, there's like, Oh, there's like, I can, Mm. I can do one thing one way, but then like, there's another way that like my body becomes like bigger and like a machine and I'm like something else. And I get to like move Mm. in this different way that I'm used to. Yeah. It's like a really profound and like beautiful idea. It's just like such a tender and like carefully observed moment. And then, yeah, for the two of them, to like have this like parental it's like his own father has sent him away but like pat's like i get it yeah i understand and his dad is played by jeffrey tambor who's like totally jeffrey tambor in this so pat is like the antidote to that because he feel you know he's he's like fun guy pat i have a total crush on pat like i want i want pat (laughs) pat's very crushable there's no, no wonder that julie is just like julie's like come on the whole movie she's just like waiting yeah get it together pat (laughs) that reminds me of of when emma was talking about philip seymour hoffman in magnolia like it's the same sort of explanation of like the soft baker type who has just like a lovely kindness to him and then like also just like increasingly gains confidence throughout the rest of the movie when when he realizes that he can with a child army arise up against his oppressor (laughs) (laughs) i also realize so the end of this movie they win the trophy against camp mvp who's like you know a camp of skinny winners basically and they're like we're gonna file a complaint we're gonna win our trophy back and pat's like is this all you want And then he has one of the kids shot put the trophy into the lake. And I was watching it and I was like, I totally stole that. Or I guess did an homage to that in the ending of that romance novel I wrote that time (laughs) where I like had it was like a Yukon gold rush love story. And at the end, like the main guy is like throwing gold nuggets over a cliff to upset the antagonist. And I was like, that's totally based on that. (laughs) <laughs> it's like a cowboy movie cliche where like a like the cow, the cowboy will like burn all the money that like the bad guys are after in one way or another yeah that's pat yeah. man that's like pat just doesn't give a shit pat's an anarchist now what i love about tony we learn in passing that like he's just like a traumatized kid a traumatized fat kid a, a traumatized fat kid yes thank you well you right, meet yeah. his dad later and we can kind of understand at least by his attitude and spirit mixed with knowing that like this is an abuse that he went through when he was a kid that he's that he's kind of carrying it forward it reminds me of like I remember I was working for a company and we had to like hire interns and I was like trying to figure out like how much we were going to pay the interns what we were going to do and like the person who I was managing with was just so like was like, why would we pay pay interns? Like I had to work like 90 hours a week in a studio for free, like in order to get to where I'm at. Like, why wouldn't we do that? And I just, it was like the first time I noticed like how linear and seamless abuse works, like that it's like, or can work. Mm. That he was like, I was abused. Why mm-hmm. wouldn't we now assume the position? And t- like Tony is possessed in one way or another yeah. by like his background. And I thought that it was so clever that they weren't like, Let's linger on this. Like they just mention it in passing. If you recognize it, it's there. Yeah. It's the lightest touch because it's like he mentions that he was a fat child. Like he mentions that like in the info 
like in the, when he's like recording his info mm-hmm. thing. And then there's that detail when they're going on that on that wild hike that's like 20 miles or whatever, where he's like, we leave stragglers behind. Like I was left behind, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it, that's like all it is. It's Tony. just like two notes where you're like, oh. oh totally. And then yeah, and then the dad at the end is like, uh, you know, you don't hug your kids. You kids are like crazy. I don't understand it. Like, it's just like totally. <laughs> the like- classic silent generation dad. Like that's my yeah. yeah the lighting yeah. king of Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> like this movie is genuinely funny. Like because I think people kind of often write movies like a kid would find this funny, right? I mean, I don't, but a kid right. would, right? This is funny. Like I watch this movie now, and I I still find it really funny. Like there's really great delivery, the humor really kind of sneaks up on you and is very sly it doesn't feel like it's pandering to children at all and i mean the ben stiller character really fits with that because he is such a visibly tragic character because he's such a broad comedic character a mm. lot of the time i also love the way he says deli meat do you remember that when he searches the oh, yeah. compartment, like a deli meat and then he's like <laughs> <laughs> just thinking about the fact that like Judd Apatow wrote this while on set of the Larry Sanders show. <laughs> That's such a funny thing to think about. It's like Steve Brill was like probably yes. finishing edits on the Mighty Ducks 2. And Judd Apatow was like making episodes of the Larry Sanders show. This is show. totally a cross between the Mighty Ducks and the Larry Sanders <laughs> Both show. Both sensibilities like, coming together. Right. Yes, absolutely. We have Tambor in yeah. it. It is genuinely funny. Another theme that like I found fascinating and just so relevant to the present moment is part of the reason that Tony becomes abusive is like ultimately at the end of the day, he's trying to like get on television, be an expert in something and have like followers to his doctrine. Yeah. That used to be like an outlying thing that like somebody could do sometimes and then like in effect abuse everyone around them. And now that's like just the entire media ecosystem is it's like Mm -hmm. all Tony's Mm -hmm. who don't care about like the outcome of what they're doing as long as they can like get a lot of followers and make a lot of money. Mm hmm. And do that by translating trauma. I mean, dare I say it, we just had President Tony. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. Sure just like running around, walking on broken glass for no reason at all. You're just looking for a Fred hug and not getting it anywhere and taking it out on all of us. Yeah. I guess listen to that new Trump book. Which one? The Mary one? I Alone Can Fix It from the Washington Post writers. It's like the box set of the news <laughs> last year. It's just a lot to like binge on the news, you know, but there's like a couple of anecdotes close together. But like there's a couple of anecdotes about like Trump's berating his staff for wearing masks. And someone's like, you know, Mr. Trump, masks are X percent effective and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, really? They work? And like he has two of these interactions within a week of each other. And the whole problem is that like that anyone was able to construct a mythology where like what is obviously just traumatized senility can seem like a political uh, philosophy yeah. or that we have a political philosophy in America that is just traumatized senility. And that's why this guy embodies it so perfectly. <laughs> <Jesus Christ>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Alex got killed by Jason. <laughs> it was a rough scene, mm-hmm. but we're going to keep talking about heavyweights yeah. because now more than ever, we need to cheer up. It's true. It's true.
Can we talk about the blob? I would love to talk about the blob. Okay, so people haven't seen it. In in the mm-hmm. promotional video we watched in the beginning, there's this footage of like a giant, I don't even know what you call it. I've never seen one of these things before. So it's like a giant air pillow that's in a lake. And so you can like climb up on like a ladder and like leap onto one side of the blob. And then the person on the other side of the blob gets like launched into the air and hurled into the lake. That's a really good description. Um, yeah, so that that is the blob. And so it like looks really fun. And they're really excited about it. And of course, when he's super angry, Tony Perkis like lances it, or I guess it's Lars who lances it. Yeah, but in Tony's name, based on his decree. Right, exactly. Like, like you know, stabs it with like a harpoon and like kills it. Yeah. And then of course, in the end, it's it's restored somehow and they're able to be on the blob again. And I think what I loved about the blob so much was like, not only is it called the blob, but like the thing about mm-hmm. the blob is that it is made better the bigger you are because the fatter you are, mm-hmm. the more weight is being brought down into the thing which launches you higher like it's more it's like there's something about it that the bigger you are the better you are at this thing which is also like the antithesis of like all these like sports are being forced to play and like all the camp mvp like baseball and all these other things where it's like a thing that you are made better at by your size yeah which i think is like really beautiful it is beautiful it's not even like oh it doesn't matter if you're fat it's like it's better if you're fat you know and like yeah, there's something really joyful about it. It's 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 sort of it's excess and it's, you know, like it embodies like sort of the ethos of the film, which I feel like is just there's so many moments like that, that it feels so intentional and so smart. And then it's just called the blob, too. And then it's kind of their mascot. Yeah, that reminds me of the, just the Titanic and skyscrapers and this idea that like, mm. you know, historically men who are the ones who have been able to build these things like love making giant things and like Mm -hmm. the bigger the like I was just watching a thing about excessive wealth yesterday and they interviewed the guy who has like the longest limo and it's so long like you could where where are you going to drive this limo like this limo you would have to be driving on like a dirt road in Texas (laughs) (laughs) using it or something it's so funny how like as humans we love grandness we love displacement we love taking up space like through the things that we build like people routinely build houses that are so big they don't even feel comfortable in them and then they just like sit in the kitchen yeah all the time because it's like the only room in their house where they feel comfortable right and yet we also love to stigmatize the idea of like your body taking up like an extra like i i have lawn chairs that I've been sitting in and like they're kind of too big for me to get my butt in and out of comfortably Hmm. and like Mm -hmm. these are kind of standard size lawn chairs and I'm just like these could be bigger (laughs) like people in America like we want to sit on our butts on a lawn chair like it's not a small butt piece of furniture just make big lawn chairs like why are we allergic to that you know like why are we I feel like the American solution is like, keep making small lawn chairs and wait for, and the people will fit the lawn chairs. Yeah, God, the first meal, the first meal that I ate post-COVID at a restaurant, like after I got vaccinated, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to a restaurant. And this, I went to my favorite restaurant in Philly and I, you know, had made a reservation for like the outdoor sort of, you know, like street table. And I got there and the chairs were so flimsy, I couldn't sit in them which was like mm. incredibly humiliating. It was hard because I sort of, I said to the the hostess, like I was like, or the host, sorry, not the hostess, the host. I said to her like, I'm sorry, I don't think I can sit in this 
chair. I think I'm going to fall out of it. And she was like, oh no, maybe the chair's broken. And I was like, no, no, no. I was like, I'm, I'm fat. And she was like, you're not fat. And I was like, no, no, I am fat. That's not, we're not, I'm not trying you don't need to like, it's fine. Like I'm not, I just, I'm telling you that what the situation is, which is that this chair will not hold me. This is like the time for the Zoolander answer. Like this chair is made for tiny <laughs> ants. <laughs> chair for ants. Um, the chair in my fence was incredibly flimsy. Like I was shocked by how flimsy it was. And I knew that if I sat in it for more than like 10 minutes, I was going to like, just the whole thing was going to collapse under me. So I had to go inside. It was like this whole thing. But I did have this similar feeling where I was like, why are we allergic to chairs that just hold us? Like I don't understand. Like that makes no sense to me. We love making tiny furniture. We talked before about you saying that Tony Perkis kind of is the 90s. Oh, my God. And I would love to unpack that further. Sorry to say unpack, but it is a fun (laughs) word. Because I feel like the 90s, especially like we're this moment and we've never escaped this, obviously, but I feel like our claim to it is more obviously false right now in a way Mm. that's hopefully productive but I think in the 90s as Americans we could just be like yeah we're a nation of skinny winners that's us and the 90s feel like a time when sort of the American ideal of positive thinking against all possible truth in the form of science and economics and what have you like that was the moment when that kind of absurd positive thinking seemed to be working as much as it possibly ever could because Mm, America mm -hmm. was was in the season of such bounty for, you know, a plethora of random reasons. And I wonder if for you, the fat phobia of the decade feels connected to that in some way. Oh, that is so interesting. And I have never, ever thought about it that way. God, I don't know. Then it's like, if we can tackle debt and war, can't we just tackle this other thing? I, I don't know. I mean, also, it's funny not to be like, I feel like I'm now referring to like the larger universe of podcasts of which you are a part, but like I just listened to the episode about maintenance phase mm. and they were talking about how like it's, I think it was in the nineties when like the definition of BMI, like there was like this moment where like they said like, okay, BMI is now this mm. and all these Americans became fat suddenly, even though they hadn't changed weight at all because like we had sort of like solidified this like definition of, I mean, this like weird fake definition of bodies and also like now it's like capitalism has its role where it's like okay now we can sell you like aerobics tapes and we can sell you gym equipment and we can sell you weight loss products and we can sell you like shakes and we can sell you all kinds of stuff and like I grew up in a house like that like I grew up in a house with a mom who like was skinny then had three children and was not skinny anymore and did slim fast and did classes and did aerobics in the house and did all this stuff and I feel like Tony Perkis I mean, it, it's, it's, I guess, a credit to Ben Stiller that he's so goofy that he's not, but like, he's a little scary. And like, I was, oh, yeah. Like, he's scary in this really intense way that feels actually really true to like, it's like I'm a person trying to live my life. And in the 90s, I was a child trying to live my life. And like, this presence was everywhere. Mm. It was like in my life, in my ears, in my house, you know, and I have a lot of like hiking trauma also. <laughs> Where it's like, let's go as fast as possible. And yes. Yeah. And it's like weird because I actually love walking and I love nature, but I have had too many hikes where people have been like, let's go this as fast as humanly possible. And if you can't keep up, well, tough for you, which is like the opposite of what I want in a walk to be. Like, I want it to be like, it's pleasant. Look at what we're seeing. Like, it's so beautiful. I feel like play hard is maybe the concept yes. we're trying to identify. I've never understood play hard. I play very, very softly. Yeah. When I was a kid, I wanted to braid pieces of grass together for hours. <laughs> Actually, I find like exercise really 
wonderful. Like I love to move my body. I love to dance. I love to run. I love to go for walks. Like I love all these things, but like for so long, there was so much trauma around these things because it's like, you're not going to enjoy it. If you're enjoying it, you're doing it incorrectly. Like you need to be suffering and you need to be like self-hating and you need to be like repentant at every moment or else you know, what's the point of any of this? And I think that all comes from that sort of diet culture that like 90s. Yeah. And like Oprah and like all this, all this, all this trauma that like comes from that era, which again makes this movie so interesting and that it like made that character who was like the thing that everyone aspired to and threw money at Mm -hmm. made that person the villain, which I think is like really, really interesting. I mean, this is the kind of thing that one of the reasons I love kids movies and horror movies is that in both of those, you can kind of try out some ideas that, maybe wouldn't fly in a movie for grownups. But in kids' movies, it's like, whatever, it's for dumb kids. No one is paying attention. And you can actually imply or just show, like, the outright sinisterness of the adult character who's just so focused on the perfectibility of the human body because you can tell that he's just, like, miserable with himself. And where Pat is, like, the positive idea of an adult male and who's someone who was a fat kid and is a fat adult and is at peace with it. Like his journey is to, you know, deal with his insecurities. And I think like, I think he's already in a good place, but you know, that it makes sense that like we have these dueling kind of dad figures in this Mm -hmm. and the difference between them is one lost weight and got rock hard abs and wants to like is running as hard and as fast as he can literally from the little kid that he used to be and because of that he has no time to mature emotionally or not be a maniac (laughs) i also feel like there's something that i noticed this watch this last watch right before we recorded which was that i there was like a eugenics-y vibe um that was Mm. really like Hmm. there were like calipers um, when they were doing sort of oh, the evaluation yeah. of the children in the beginning. And then there's also this like weird moment when Pat is about to release, is like panicking because like they've imprisoned Tony and he's about to release him from, and he like takes the tape off and Tony is like, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna kick you so hard. Like you don't have, ch- you can't have children. Like there's like this really like intense. Yeah. And then like Pat like refixes the duct tape on his face and is like, we can get more ropes if you want. Like you totally, you know, <laughs> whatever fine Mm -hmm. but again this all I think these are all connected to this idea of like BMI and like fatness is a thing you have to sort of like try to like make go away like it's this like sort of undesirable trait Mm -hmm. it just felt very like old-timey in this like weird intense way this movie has layers yeah and like and the fact that Tony that he sets up this dance because he's so sure that none of the girls are going to want to dance with the boys and they're all going to be so shamed that they lose the weight faster and then when they all just start dancing and having a good time, he has to shut it down. because. Yeah. And I feel like actually the fact that this movie, it could have been bigger than it was. And I feel like the fact that it wasn't or that it would have been potentially not introduced into homes with fat children and where the parents are doing the media gatekeeping, like that feels like that same Tony logic of like, if people find out that like they don't have to change dramatically in order to be accepted by anybody, then like they won't buy what I'm selling. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And people say this to folks who are like talking about like fat fashion. They're like, if you make fat mm-hmm. people clothes that look they look nice in, they're not going to have an incentive to lose weight. It's such a weird argument, like that your weight loss plan is that you're going to lose weight. I mean, setting aside like the sort of physical realities of all that, like 
that you're going to be motivated to lose weight if you're forced to wear like sweatpants and burlap every day. Like that's, yeah. And this applies to so much. You know, I think we have conversations about wealth redistribution in the same tone, this idea that like people will be forced to change if they're suffering. And it's like, when has that ever been true of anyone? It's never been true for me. Yeah. I've never observed that in myself. I've never, I don't think I've ever observed it in anyone else either. So like, why do people want that to be true? Yeah. So that's what makes heavy weights so incredibly subversive. Yeah. I wish that I had internalized that lesson as an older like teen. Like again, like I wasn't a fat kid watching it. So I feel like it didn't connect with mm-hmm. me on that level, but I truly wish that like someone had sat me down and been like, like it basically said to me what the movie is saying when I was like 16 would have avoided a lot of, uh, a lot of suffering <laughs> um, in my, in my youth. Tony Perkis goes on a journey as does everyone else in this movie. Like he arrives pretty highly strung. And then we see him, I think really experience a meltdown. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Which makes oh, him yeah, yeah. vulnerable to uh, being tricked and thrown in kid jail. But like, <laughs> Did you watch to the end of the credits? Yeah. <laughs> that I do not remember from a childhood. And we just happened to like be running through the credits while we were watching it the other day and got to the end where he's like a salesman selling like healing crystals door to door, which felt like also really appropriate. And again, like really weirdly contemporary where it's like yeah. people who try to hawk one thing and it doesn't work out. They're like, okay, I'm going to try to hawk something else that like is basically the same random nonsense, but like it's just like a, with a different sort of outfit. And just imagining him now, he's now probably like a wellness coach. Oh, yeah. yeah selling like essential oils or something. Like, I can just imagine. I was just going to say essential oils. He totally is. Yeah. Yeah. Tony is so hell-bent on self-perfection and on selling this doctrine to these kids. Like, to me, the, the kind of deepest lesson of my life really is that, like, I don't need to become something or to reach some kind of goal in order to become worthy of love from myself or anyone else that like I and everyone else as we are like we are already worthy of love like we are doing our best we have done what we can with what we have to this point and like as human beings we are worthy of unconditional love like not from certain people Mm -hmm. as something that that happens to us as human beings and when we encounter it we have to accept it rather than pushing it away and like that lesson is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is something so dangerous and so seditious about it. And I feel like part of it is because like if you accept yourself, if you truly accept yourself, then like you can't be swindled by the Tonys of the world, basically. And as we just saw, like that, you know, government can become vulnerable to that kind of a trade. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this has also been like a part of my, I guess, journey as an adult, as like a fat adult is like, at some point I was like, I know that I'm fat. I do not care. It truly does not bother me. I have wonderful, fulfilling relationships. I'm very happy. There's nothing you can do or say to like touch that. And I feel like that people really panic Mm. when they encounter that philosophy. They seem to based on my time looking at Reddit. Oh my God. Well, (sighs) and I think it's because, I mean, my honest sort of read on that is if you meet somebody who is fat and happy and they're like, I'm fine, I'm living my best life and I have no qualms or concerns about my body in any way or about my fatness mm-hmm. and people who have like given their whole lives over to things like weight loss and wellness, trying to achieve this body that's like impossible or cannot be found, then there's a sense that they have wasted their time and that, that, that yeah. like there was a there was an alternate path and they did not choose it. And I think people really panic And I think one response to that is being like, that's so interesting. Like, maybe I can adopt that. But the other 
sort of more defensive position is like, you're full of lies. There's no way you could be happy because I know that it's like, it's not, it's not possible. I forgot the term for it, but I think there's a, a specific term for like when you're in a cult, like a doomsday cult specifically, and then doomsday doesn't come and you're confronted with like full on evidence of like, oh, it seems like this thing you believe in is a scam. Like that's when you dig in harder yeah. and you're like, no, like the the God of my cult is a real God. Like that, that feels like that moment. <laughs> Weightless culture is a cult. I mean, it is a kind of cult. Because mm-hmm. um, it's based on giving away a lot of your resources to like something that will never happen. Exactly. Incredibly profitable. The sensibility that like kind of re- has to reject a certain amount of reason. And yeah, and something that you can like sink all your money and your time into and you can lose your whole life doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this movie is like incredible, like canny in that way and like understands that to be true. And I think, yeah, I just think that's like incredibly smart. And again, shocking for the 90s. Like completely unreal that was happening in yeah. whatever year. It, was it 95? 95? Yeah, maybe? I think it's 95. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were a bunch of movies kind of like this in the 90s where kids are playing a sport together and that's how they bond. And, you know, they become a good hockey team. They become a good soccer team. They become a good baseball team, whatever. And these kids just like to discover self-respect and they become a good relay team. Mm-hmm. But that's partly because Nicholas is so good at art history. I know, right? <laughs> that also I felt like was really interesting because I do feel like one of the nastier things about fat phobia is this sort of, I mean, the idea of like the bumbling fat person who's also really stupid. Mm. Like I feel like fatness as a, as a sort of shorthand for stupidity so it was also really beautiful to sort of like not only take them through, it's like they managed to get through all these like physical obstacles, but also, or Jerry's really beautiful, like go-kart sort of moment at the end, but also just like, like really smart and just like tearing through the like hall of intelligence, whatever they called it. The part where Josh shaves a balloon. Oh, yeah. I love like, there's nothing cooler than like the sixth grader who shaves. <laughs> Yeah, I just listened to Disney War, which I've mentioned in previous episodes and which is just about the Disney company kind of uh, from the the Eisner years. So from the early 80s to the mid aughts, basically. And it's so interesting to kind of see the backside of that and see sort of what mental calculus are people making about children's media. Mm -hmm. And based on that, this is the kind of movie that I can imagine squeaking through because they're like, it won't cost that much to make. If it makes some money, that'll be nice. But like no one has high expectations. Like it feels like just a forgotten child that managed to be, to me, just astoundingly radical for that reason. It's kind of like the fat kid that no one believes in or cares about. Yeah. And then that like actually it, that is like, I'm going to show you. <laughs> like I will achieve longevity and be charming and fresh and relevant in 30 years. Yeah. I'm going to just stand the test of time, which I feel like is, again, like so many movies of the 90s that I've rewatched have like not necessarily stood the test of time. The utopia still remains. The blob is there. Mm-hmm. In this moment, like, oh, my God, for those of you listening in the future, We have been having a pandemic for 17 months (laughs) at this point, which like I back when this was beginning, this was kind of my projection for like, it'll be totally over the summer of late summer of next year. And I was like, okay, even in my pessimism, I undershot the mark. So like the amount of fatigue Mm -hmm. that is present in America is just like even more than usual, which is amazing. 
to me, it's so interesting to see kind of our relentless culture of like self-improvement and personal responsibility colliding with just the bare fact of like, we cannot self-improve through this, basically. No essential oil. No percocizing. Exactly. We'll fix this planet. It's like you're going to wear sweatpants and you're going to you're just going to have to do it. And there's no there's no alternative. Yeah. Don't put Twinkies on your pizza, but like learn not to do it by doing it Mm -hmm. at least once. These movies often kind of have advice to kids that are like, always believe in yourself. And it's like, what if I'm a fascist? Should I believe in myself then? Or like, be disciplined. And it's like, because you got this far by being disciplined and you're so happy. And this movie, just it works for me personally because the wisdom it offers is the only wisdom that I've really found to be true in my own life, which is basically like, you are worthy of love already. And if you find relationships where you can practice offering and receiving that love, then you can bring that philosophy into the bigger world and you can offer it to more people and and model that and show people how to experience that as well. And ultimately, you can't sell self-improvement. You can only sort of show people that they don't need to self-improve. Yeah. This movie tells viewers what the dance tells the kids in the movie in a way, I hope, which is like, you don't have to change who you are in order to find your people. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode. Thank you to Carmen for being here. It was so great to have you. We we appreciate you. Everyone was stoked that you were going to be here talking about this movie, and we are stoked ourselves. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Uh, Carolyn makes our all of our episodes. I believe has made every single one of these episodes. And uh, as a musician, you can find Carolyn at carolynkendrick.com. We're going to have songs from past episodes coming out in a compilation soon. We're very excited to share that with you when that comes out. Thank you uh, to you for listening. Thank you to everyone who supports us at Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Yeah, I think that's it. You can find us on social media at Instagram. You can find us at Twitter. Say hello there. You can say hello via the Patreon. And I think that's all you need to know for now. I'm really looking forward to uh, talking with you all next week. All right. Take care of yourselves.